0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. Well, welcome to the Vineyard. I'm really glad you guys are here. 8.30 crowd, you're the true believers. You're the real early birds, okay? Last week, with the time change, all of those people, those aren't the true believers. You guys are. It's freezing cold outside, and you're still here. Well done. Uh, It's an interesting week at the vineyard here. We have uh, our fire systems doing something really wonky out there. Ignore a beep if you happen to hear it, or a series of beeps. I'll let you know if it's a real alarm. Um, Also, uh, we're down a vocalist. Um, and we're down uh, a projection screen, and everything's fine. God is good, all is well, we're going to have church, we're gathered with the saints in the presence of the Lord. I'm not really sure what happened here. Actually, what, what did happen is we found out that the people on this side of the church weren't giving as much to the campaign, and so we're like, we're cutting you off, um, Clearly, that's not true. <laughs> what, I, what I think happened is it was really cold, and this, and I think this projector was like, "I'm taking the day off. That's what I'm doing. I'm out. I'm not going to play along." So, uh, anyway, uh, really glad that you guys are here, and it is actually a big week here in the life of our church. Um, we're in this campaign called "Onward for Your Kingdom." Uh, And this is week three of three for our giving period. So this is uh, week three of three. So this is sort of our final uh, opportunity to see if we can't get toward this goal. So uh, we set the goal, as you saw in the video, of raising $2 million. Uh, Good news is, this past week, we kicked over the $1 million number, which is awesome. We're at $1,067,794, which is so much yeah, thank you so much for those of you who have given um, and have pledged. That's incredible. It's um, so much, and then we're also still kind of a long way from that goal, too. So we're hoping we end with a bang. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how that goes. Um, I just want to encourage you guys, uh, as we have each week, um, to give generously, to give as the Lord is leading. And um, if you haven't already... Um, This is week three of three, so if you would fill out the pledge card and on the back, these are in the chair backs in front of you with a one-time gift amount and uh, a monthly pledge, if possible, and as the Lord is directing you. uh, Please be obedient and follow the Lord's direction in that, guys. I'm so excited uh, about the way things are going, about uh, this new building that we're going to be able to move into. Guys, we're just going to be able to serve this community so much better. We're going to be able to reach more people, help more people, bless more people, um, see more people find life with Jesus. I'm so excited about it. Um, I know that you guys are as well, so we're really excited, and uh, we're in three services here, guys. We, we uh, have outgrown this building long since, um, and we're eager to have the opportunity to grow uh, moving forward, so um, uh, it's week three of three. Next week will be the last week of our campaign. Uh, we'll sort of wrap things up, put a little bow on it. It'll be the last time I get the cool intro music on my way up uh, to preach, um, and then we will move on to... Um, Advent, believe it or not, because it's there. We're here now, which is is wild. Let me take a minute um, to pray, and then we're going to jump right into the sermon. Jesus, we love you so very much. Thank you for your presence in this room. Thank you for your great love and kindness toward every single person in this room. There is not one person in here that you don't love in ways and with a depth that we cannot even begin to fathom or comprehend. You delight in your creation. You rejoice and sing over us. Which is remarkable because we're just these busted people. And yet you love us so, so much. I see you make every person in this room aware of that truth. And would you help all of us, Lord, to believe it just a little bit more in this particular moment. Your great love for us. Thank you, King Jesus. As we look now to your word and to really a challenging message, God, I ask that uh, you would speak to us and that uh, through your word, um, we would hear what you've got for us this morning and we wouldn't miss it. And we ask God that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I think I. think forgot to say that you could drop the pledge cards at the uh, offering boxes on your way out. There's no other additional ceremony or anything to it, just offering boxes. If you have any questions, by the way, um, about anything campaign related at all, um, please don't hesitate to ask. Um, it just tells me that you care, so don't hesitate at all. Alright, we're going to dive in here to part 9, part nine of 10 <laughs> for Onward for Your Kingdom. And uh, I want to lead us into a, a little bit of a a tonal shift today. Um, I, I've been pretty insistent on a few things so far in this series, and you know I love a recap, so let me remind you of those things. Uh, we have seen a major shift in our society, and we are now living in a post Christian context, even here in the Bible Belt. And I hope you remember this part. I've been insistent. This is not a crisis. This is not. A crisis. It sounds really, really scary. Well, what does it mean, the collapse of Christendom? You know, how are we supposed to get our heads around that? It sounds really scary. But I want to remind you once again that this has happened under the watchful eye of our sovereign God who is renewing all things and who didn't fall off of his throne when Christendom fell off of it. Okay? So let's keep that in mind. Uh, Christendom collapsed because it was defiled. God let it happen. This is not a crisis. In fact, this is an opportunity. I hope you guys all knew that. Now, I've also highlighted um, the mass amounts of anxiety in our culture right now. It's just kind of in the warts in the air. You all feel it. This, of course, is not news to anybody. Uh, we, all, we all feel it. We get it, right? And when the anxiety is high, uh, we often turn against one another, and we turn against established institutions, Now, when I shared that, it may or may not have been new language for some of you, but that's not new information to anybody at all in the room. We've all been seeing this stuff happen. We look around, we feel the anxiety going up, we see people turning on each other, we see people turning against established institutions. So we all are aware of this, even if the language is new. Once again, I've been adamant about this, and hear me, this is not a crisis. This is not a crisis. It's destabilizing, it's exhausting, it's kind of scary, not a crisis. Again, for believers in Jesus, this is an opportunity. I've said before, the historical precedent in the history of the church is completely unassailable. The church rises from cultural ashes. When things are anxious, we thrive. We thrive in persecution, if that should come our way. Our message is hope. And our hope is not reliant upon circumstances in this world and in the broader culture. So our hope, the message that we have that's not contingent upon the way things are going when we read the news, becomes all the more needed and all the more attractive in times like this. As we've said, the uh, the light shines brightest in the darkest of nights. Again, again, not a crisis for us, the people of God. This is an opportunity. So... Y'all remember all that, right? (laughs) Yeah, okay. So this has been my disposition the last few weeks. Deep breath, everybody. Deep breath. Stay calm. Uh, Rise above the the histrionics and the fear and the anger and, and, and the reactivity. That we see everywhere. You might might remember this verse. I I read it a few times. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5 says, But you keep your head in all situations. Y'all remember that? Keep your head in all situations. Keep your head. I said it over and over again. So we're going to keep our head in all situations. Deep breath, calm down. Everything's fine. So, look, I'm not backing away from any of that. I believe all of that down to my core. But, with all that said, I do think that there is. A crisis there is there is a crisis and about this crisis i do not think that we should panic i do not think that we should lose our heads because when paul said don't lose your heads keep them in all situations that still applies to this situation but there is actually a crisis my concern however is when i share you share this with you um my concern is not that you will lose your head my concern is that your response would be more like okay <laughs> A shrug, that's what I'm concerned about, a shrug. A casual dismissal, that you hear this and go, "Mm," because I'm trying really hard to sound an alarm, okay? And actually the fire alarm system in the back is also trying to sound alarm. We're working together to try to sound an alarm this morning. But my concern, and I think the likelihood is that most people will hear this and not actually find it all of that alarming. But I think we should be alarmed. Okay. Not lose our heads, not panic. But be alarmed, because it is a crisis. All right. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 28, three verses here this morning. And these are a big three verses. Um, you've heard this explained as the Great Commission. Um, if you're a church kid, you could probably quote it along as we go. But it's, I got it. But you probably could. And... Um, this is really significant just for a bit of context here. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples after he has died and rose again. And right before he ascends to the throne, he gets the, the 11 then disciples together and tells them what the grand plan is for the church that they are now about to go launch. And he goes, all right, here it is. Let me boil it down. This is the irreducible minimum. These are the marching orders. And Here's what he says. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here we go. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay. So here's the crisis. You don't, don't run out screaming. There is a crisis of non-discipleship in the church. No gasps. <laughs> no one seems alarmed. There's a crisis, a crisis. I don't use that word lightly. A crisis of non-discipleship within the life of the church. I want to remind you what we just read. The command of Jesus was to go and make disciples. And then he explained to them exactly what he meant by going and making disciples. He said, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. All the stuff that I've taught so that they would obey, so that they would follow, making genuine disciples. That's not typically what's happening, generally speaking, in the life of churches. Here's what's happened. We've largely zeroed in on a single moment of salvation, the, the pivotal moment when people are saved and, and made converts in that. And then we've created a second tier of Christians. Within the converted, there's this subset of Christians who will then really lean into becoming disciples. And those then will be the true apprentices. Those will be the people who really walk with Jesus. But hear me on this. That's not how Jesus talked about it at all. In his mind, and this is abundantly clear, all converts are disciples. There's no distinction that he drew. None. That was us. I'm going to read you a quote by John Mark Comer. It's very upsetting. So here we go. This demotion of discipleship to an optional secondary phase in the spiritual journey has created a two-tier church across the world. where you have a wide band of Christians who have a nominal faith. We talked about nominalism. Faith is just sort of on the fringe of your life, but it's not central. They have a nominal faith whose primary reference point for spirituality is essentially a syncretism or a blending of Christianity and consumerism. And then you have a minority who are actually following Jesus and living as disciples or apprentices. I think if we like submitted a report to Jesus and we said, hey Jesus, check this out. I'm wrote up a report look at all these converts that we made i think jesus would kindly say well strong effort guys that's good but that really isn't what i asked you to do is it i asked you the commandment was to go and make disciples remember Remember, and I I said, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And I think he would say lovingly, yes, but I think he would say to us, guys, I'm not looking for nominal converts. I want apprentices. I've always wanted apprentices. Apprentices. So, look, I, I, I'm not really, I'm not trying to be melodramatic here. I, I just want to point out, and I think this is true, I think it needs to be pointed out. I just want to point out that the way the church in general, and there are so many beautiful exceptions to this, and hopefully we're a part of that, but the way the church in general has been talking about salvation just doesn't sound very much like the way Jesus talked about it. He used really different language than we do. Do you ever notice that? He He never tried to make a convert. He never said that. He never asked anyone, have you been saved? Or, am I in your heart? Or, did you walk the aisle? And I want to be clear, none of those are bad things to say. They can all, with enough context, be really helpful and good things to say to help us understand these things. I just want to point out, that's not the language Jesus used. When he called people to faith, the invitation wasn't to walk an aisle once. Instead, it was to walk with him and in obedience to him in everything forever. That's the way he talked about it. He said, when, when we preach the gospel, you kind of know what that sounds like, right? When we invite people to have uh, an experience with Jesus, to encounter the love of God. Um, you know the language we use. The language that he used was repent. That was the word he used. That was the key word, repent. And the word repent means to turn away. So it means if you're going one direction in your life, I want you to stop going that direction, change that direction, and now go the way that I am going. That's what repent means. Repent, he said, because the kingdom of God is at hand. The other way he preached the gospel was this, come, follow me. Come and follow me. Drop what you're doing, the direction that you're going, and go this way, my way, instead. Let me read you another quote from John Mark Comer, and this one's full-on devastating. It ruined my week, so I thought it would be loving to share it with you. John Mark Homer said this The gospel has been preached in such a way that you could become a Christian without becoming a disciple of Jesus. I I want you to take a second and sit on that and consider whether or not that might actually be true. Because I think it's altogether true. At least on balance, we're painting with broad strokes. But painting with broad strokes, this is true. The gospel has been preached. In such a way that you could become a Christian without becoming a disciple of Jesus. If you said to me, Aaron, what's the, what's the big problem in the church today? I would say this. Well, isn't it, isn't it, you know, the doctrinal questions that we're debating? I would say, nope, I don't think it's that. I think the doctrinal questions that we're debating come downriver of the fact that the gospel has been preached in such a way that you could become a disciple without becoming, that you could be a Christian without becoming a disciple. Well, what about the sexual ethic, the issues that are just tearing tearing apart the church today? I would say, nope, all of that is a direct result of the fact that the gospel has been preached in such a way that you could become a Christian without becoming a disciple of Jesus. I could just go on and on. You list the problem. I think they're all downriver of this one. This is the crisis. And again, There are lots of wonderful exceptions to this, and so many of the beautiful, wonderful, thank God for you exceptions are in the room right now and will be in the coming services. I'm not like coming after Vineyard Church right now. I'm not doing that. I want us to see this. It's really important. The gospel has been preached in such a way that you could become a Christian without becoming a disciple of Jesus, and that's not the way Jesus said it. I think a lot of this language uh, was popularized by Billy Graham And I want to be very clear about that. That's not a criticism of Billy Graham. If you go back, and I recommend you do this, if you go back and listen to a Billy Graham sermon, they're all over YouTube, by the way. Thank God for YouTube. Uh, You can learn anything everywhere, always. But um, if you go back and listen to it, you will find um, that he is clear as a bell. He is calling people to repentance, to obedience, to genuine discipleship, for sure. But in the wake of his really, really fruitful ministry, a lot of folks have picked up on his language specifically around that pivotal salvation moment and then they have left behind the obey, follow, submit stuff that's been left behind along with the grainy black and white footage. And the result has been, and hear me on this, I'll make sure this lands, a deeply transactional formulation of what it means to be a Christian. The result of emphasizing a moment instead of life with Jesus has been a deeply transactional formulation of what it means to be a Christian. It goes like this, three parts. Number one, the God of the Bible is the real God. Number two, uh, you can go to a good place or a bad place when you die, and the good place is way better than the bad place. And number three, say yes to the God of the Bible And you get the good place. Boom. Done. Transaction complete. So, essentially, salvation became about the acceptance of a handful of doctrinal beliefs. But again, hear me. That's not how Jesus did it. That's not the way he presented it. He said, come and follow me. He said, repent, stop going the way that you're going and go my way instead and do that with your entire life, with your everything forever. Come on, church, if you're a church kid, I want you to think about this. You remember all the stuff that Jesus said, right? You've been in church, many of you, for a very long time. Remember the stuff that Jesus said about what it means to follow him? He said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, whoever loses their life for my sake will gain it. He said, the widow who gave everything is the only one who got it right. He said, the repentant man who tore his clothes, he's the only one who went home justified. He said, the one who puts their hands to the plow and then turns back isn't worthy. He said, we're last of all and we're servants all. He said, let the dead bury their own dead. That's how Jesus talked about salvation. He wasn't talking about a transaction. He was talking about a whole new way to be human and how to live as an apprentice of Jesus. Y'all still with me? All right. I'm going to assume the deathly silence is because the alarm is ringing and not because you're miserably bored. <laughs> so um, I'll talk about a couple of outcomes uh, here, and then I'm going to talk about how our church is trying to respond to this stuff. Uh, the first outcome is a uh, another Outworking of our weird cultural moment. So we've we've got a slide um, that will point out three things. Yeah, monoculture, monoculture, pluralism, and hostility. This is just a this is something that happens sort of throughout time memorial across you know different cultures and throughout history. So this is just a this is a common trend that happens in societies. Um, A a society will become monocultural, which means that generally speaking, most people kind of have similar worldviews. Uh, similar religious uh, foundations, even if they're not devout in their faith, at least nominally, um, a, a general understanding of, of how to live our lives, um, social norms, uh, religion, etc. So um, this is what America was under Christendom. We were essentially, now of course there are many exceptions to this, but broadly speaking, we were a monoculture. So if you went to someone and said, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian, then somebody would say, that's awesome, I am too, that's great. That's great. Let's go get ice cream, and off you'd go. But then when a monoculture starts to give way, then a society becomes more pluralistic. Pluralism is when there are multiple ideologies, multiple worldviews, multiple religious perspectives that are operating in the same space. And in a pluralistic society, there's a general embrace and a welcome to those various ideas. It's actually sort of a beautiful way to be where where there's an acceptance that, you know, there are different ideas, different perspectives, different ideologies, and we can all get along. It's all going to be okay. In a pluralistic society, you say, I am a Christian. And the other person says, you know what? I'm not a Christian, but that's cool that you're a Christian. You do you. Let's go get ice cream. And then you go get ice cream. And then there's hostility that emerges unfortunately emerges inevitably from pluralism because even though pluralism is a is a beautiful ideal that we can all kind of coexist regardless of our different perspectives The reality is different worldviews with different values, different understandings of what's most important, they inevitably start to collide and to slam into one another because we're running in different directions and we're fueled by different motivations. We're doing different things for different reasons and they start to slam into each other and then people go, wait a minute, pluralism's not so awesome because these people are not helping me get to where I want to go and we're fighting against one another and it gives way to an incredibly hostile environment where people see one another's differences and begin to attack one another because of it. So in this environment, you say, I am a Christian, and the next person says, well, I'm not a Christian, and I'm not okay with the fact that you are a Christian, and I hope you get ice cream by yourself, and I hope it's poisoned and you die, or something like that. It's a bit of a dramatization. Okay, that's what happens. Now, here's what's an interesting thing that happened. America has gone down this path. I hope you can see that. If you take America as a whole, we've gone from a monoculture to pluralistic to now an incredibly hostile environment. What's interesting, though, is in the Bible Belt, the monoculture held on longer. And that monoculture held on longer while the rest of American society was becoming pluralistic. And as American society was going from from pluralism to hostility, that's when America, or pardon me, when the Bible Belt finally succumbed to the broader society, which means in the Bible Belt, we went straight from monoculture to hostility. We skipped the middle step. And that was very jarring for a lot of us. From let's go get ice cream because we're both believers to I hate you because you're a believer and I hope you choke on your ice. Nobody chokes on ice cream. It's not a great illustration, just where the mind is going. And some people have gone, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for heaven is better than hell, the God of the Bible, and joining the majority. This isn't what I signed up for. And so the outcome from that, in many cases, is a crisis of belief. Because living for Jesus now requires doing a different kind of math. And Nominal Christianity, as we said a couple weeks ago, it just doesn't make sense anymore. And so for those who decided to be in, but on the fringe, you know, for social reasons, or um, just to try to fit in, or because it seemed like the right thing to do, now all of a sudden they are confronted with a decision to make. Do Do I want to be a true disciple of Jesus or not? I mean, it's one thing when it essentially helps me move the ball forward, and it's helpful in a number of ways uh, socially. But if I'm going to get some backlash for this, do I really want to do this? And we've been confronted, many of us, with this question, and that's been destabilizing for a lot of people. But hear me on this. I've said this before. I'll repeat it. I don't mind. This is a really good thing. We need, all of us, we need to know if our commitment to Jesus is born out of convenience or out of allegiance. We need, that's an important distinction. We need to know. It's actually a gift to be confronted by these questions, as unsettling as they are. That's one outcome. That is born, it's born directly from this crisis of non-discipleship because people became converts without, being, without it being made sufficiently clear to them that they had to become last of all and servant of all and be willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Okay, so that's one outcome. Another outcome um, is that Lots of people sign on for the Jesus thing. And please, this is the most important part. Please don't miss this. Lots of people in past decades sign on for the Jesus thing, but they never actually experience the joy of being a disciple. This is a really big deal. Because, I want to explain this to you. I'm going to put it indelicately, so I hope I don't offend you. But here we go. Nominal faith sucks. It's the worst. You just feel lied to all the time. It's a big old bait and switch. And people are miserable in it. Here's why. I said this earlier. Uh, People often get saved because of the heaven is better than hell thing, right? Which is, by the way, true. 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 But they also do it not just because of that. Because when they were told about life with Jesus, they, they talked about the heaven is better than hell thing, and that seems like a, a really good thing. But then it also comes with all these amazing promises that come like these sweet like stack of life upgrades, where things just get so much better. Where, you, as Jesus put it, we get to live a, an abundant life, or we get to have life to the fullest. Or, how about this, a peace that passes all understanding or unspeakable joy full of glory, deep rest in the Father, an empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, comfort in our struggles, uh, strength in our challenges, genuine friendship with God, and somehow in the midst of all of that, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And all of those are just bonus additions to the whole eternal life thing. That's one heck of a deal. It's one heck of a deal. But here's the rub, and don't miss it. Hear me, please. Those things are all very, very real. But they all come downriver. They're all a byproduct. They're They're all an outcome of truly walking with Jesus. Hear me. Those things are all real, and they're better than reported. But they do not come from a salvation moment. They come from a lifestyle of apprenticeship to Jesus the King. Hear me. Nominal faith doesn't deliver on any of those things. And because we have a crisis of non-discipleship, there's people all over who genuinely believe that if you just walk an aisle, all of that stuff comes with the package. It's like preloaded software. And it's just not true And after a while, people get pretty frustrated and they start looking around and disappointed and wondering when all this abundant life stuff they were told about is going to kick in. And they look around and start wondering who lied to them and why Jesus didn't tell them about this stuff in the first place, but he did. He did. The whole two-tiered thing where people walk an aisle but never really walk with Jesus, that was our creation. It was not his he never said put me on the outskirts of your life he never said I am appropriately situated on the fringe of your reality what he said was repent and come follow me because I'm the Lord of everything he never gave hear me not even a hint that we could be Christians without being disciples disciples And all of the abundant life, surpassing peace, deep rest, spiritual power stuff comes to the Christians who really walk with Jesus. But according to Jesus, that's the only kind of Christian. He never separated Christianity and discipleship. That was us. But because that's become so dominant of a perspective, We now have a crisis of non-discipleship. Okay. You should feel pretty bummed out. I hope it's working. So, um, this was, by the way, not how they told me to do fundraising when I asked. Um, So, okay, so what are we doing about it? Because, remember, the series that we're doing is supposed to be about the vision of our church, right? Well, to be very clear, we're shaping so much of what we do in this church, in response to this crisis. Um, I'll tell you this, guys. I just want to level with you. There are some folks, plenty of folks out there who insist that presenting people with the lowest possible bar for knowing Jesus is the most loving thing to do. I frankly disagree. I just don't think that's the most. I know I understand why that sounds the most loving thing. I don't. I think it's unloving to present the gospel differently than Jesus did. I think it's unloving to present the gospel in a way that keeps people from finding the joy of abundant life, the joy of really following him. And hear me on this. You need to hear your pastor say this. Maybe that adds up to fewer converts. But it means more disciples. And that's what Jesus told us to make. And it's the disciples, by the way, the true disciples, the apprentices, those are the ones who go off and change the world and declare the truth and, and, and proclaim it to the people all around them so that more will know and be converted to apprenticeship and life with Jesus. In response to this crisis, we have changed the vision of our church. You remember a couple or a year or two ago now, we changed We said we have a different vision for our church. It was born out of this crisis. Our vision is now walk with Jesus, love your neighbor. Walk with Jesus, love your neighbor. Everything that we do flows from that vision. And I've said many, many times, and I'll say it again, I'll say it many times more. If we walk with Jesus, we will love our neighbor. It's an inevitable outcome. You cannot walk with Jesus and not love your neighbor. It's, it doesn't work that way. And so what does that mean? That means our message boils down to this. Friends, walk with Jesus day by day, hour by hour, left foot, right foot, walk with Jesus. Jesus, I said a couple of months ago, and you might have thought it was hyperbole, or maybe I said it in the moment. I thought about it, I meant it, and now I'm doubling down, I'm going to repeat it. I get to preach for about 25 more years. That's my rough estimate, Lord willing, right? I get to go about 25 more years left in this run, and I preach about 40 times a year in this church, which means I've got about 1,000 sermons left to preach to you. Some of you are horrified at the notion. <laughs> <laughs> All 1,000 of those sermons will ultimately end with this. Friends, walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. We also, about a year or two ago, changed our core values. Our core values are kingdom, formation, mission, simplicity, and reconciliation. Once we enter into the kingdom, we begin a process of formation, formation. Spiritual formation, I use that language intentionally, this idea that through walking with Jesus as an apprentice of his, we will be shaped and formed into something new. But he will form us day by day, hour by hour, into people who will truly bear his image more and more. And out of that comes mission and simplicity and reconciliations and all the things that we do in joining God in the renewal of all things. You may not have noticed this, but as, maybe as I go back and highlight it, especially been around the church for a while, you'll notice some of these shifts. Let me point them out to you now. Um, I've been talking less and less about being a Christian, which I'm for, by the way, um, and I've been talking more and more about life with Jesus. Because being a Christian sounds like perhaps that could be a transactional moment, a one-time thing where you walk an aisle, whereas life with Jesus means a day-by-day, hour-by-hour walk with him. Increasingly, I've been using, and this, uh, the new scholarship agrees on this, by the way, the best translation for the word disciple that we find in the Bible is apprentice. The idea of an apprentice puts a different picture in our mind than the word disciple. If we are apprentices of Jesus, we have this understanding that we will follow him, walk with him day-by-day. Day. We will learn the things that he is doing, how he does them, what fuels him, and then out of that so that we might go and do the things that he does. So I've been using intentionally this language, apprenticeship. You may have noticed this, I've been saying the word allegiance a lot for the last year or two. Have you noticed that? I've been talking specifically about salvation to Christ as allegiance to our King. This idea of allegiance again I think starts to build this image and shape this idea that it's a daily ongoing thing that our lives are lived in full allegiance to him. I've been intentionally saying King Jesus more than just Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed that, but that phrase, I've been saying it again and again and again, I've said it thousands of times. King Jesus, to remind us that if we are followers of Christ, then we bow our knees to him and submit to him as to a king in everything. We hired a discipleship pastor whose sole mission is to get more of you to walk with Jesus. We moved things around so that Natasha could be focused on adult ministry as well. And her job now, primarily, the main thing she's trying to do is help more of you walk with Jesus. In order to do that, we had to hire a kids pastor. Our kids pastor, Zach, is in the room down the hall right now trying to teach your children how to walk with Jesus. We are rethinking everything through these lenses. We are responding to a crisis of non-discipleship. And, and I, David, I guess, or whoever's coming up can come up. And I've been so encouraged, particularly in the last year, as I've seen more and more people find the joy of truly walking with him. I could, I could go through each section and point out people who have come to me and said, I did the whole nominal faith thing I did the whole walk the aisle thing and it was unsatisfying. It didn't do the trick. But in the last year, the last two years, the last few years, I have learned how to walk with Jesus and it is the most fulfilling and life-giving thing. I never knew it could be so beautiful and good. I've heard this testimony again and again and again and again because more and more people in the life of this church are being pushed Onto them this decision. Do you still want to be a disciple of Jesus when things are tough? And more and more of you are saying, yes, I do. I don't want nominal faith on the fringes. I want to walk with Jesus every day of my life. I am so encouraged by what's happening. And I'm telling you, it's only just begun We're going to continue to respond to this crisis of non-discipleship by teaching people, by encouraging one another as iron sharpens iron, to be apprentices of Jesus, to walk with him every single day, and to experience the transformation that comes from it. And what has happened as you've seen the church grow, especially in recent months, it's because more of you, frankly, are beaming with the joy of Jesus. And more and more people are finding that attractive. And they want what you've got.